Welcome to the third of our primer episodes of the Two Year Bible. This is Chris and Sarah. Hey. And uh, we, this, for this session, want to talk about genre and why that really matters in reading the text because we have so many different genres in scripture mm-hmm. uh, that it's really important. Uh, because when you open up, uh, if you were to open up a Hemingway book and you were to open up a poetry book and you were to open up a really intense history book and you were to open a letter from the U.S. government, whatever it may be, and it starts reading and writing, so to whom it may concern, how you read that, how you understand that, it's going to be different than uh, opening up a, 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 a fictional novel that starts in a different way. And so how you think about it, how you approach it, how you process it really matters. And we can't just kind of process all genres in the same way. And we're not meant to. That's just not how it works. And so... Um, yeah, so how, uh, and maybe we can ask this question on the front end, how has understanding genre impacted any sort of personal reading for you, Sarah, in terms of, um, like, or we could save yeah. this question no, for the I end think, if you want. Yeah, but. like my eyes are getting big because massively. <laughs> when I learned to read historical narrative as history and chronicling things that had happened instead of something that I need to read and understand and somehow apply to my life in that same way, it, it made a huge difference. Or looking at the way that poetry is speaking in imagery helps me to understand and know and connect to God in a different way than I would have if I'd thought, again, that I was supposed to interpret it all as literally or all as instructive. Yeah, no, that's that's so good. And, and even knowing, I mean, we'll talk about historical narrative in a second, but even knowing, look, like the authors have agendas and we, it's dangerous sometimes to overlay 1800s German understanding of how history should be written right. and uh, historical narrative and, and, and how it's told back then is going to be different than how we think about things. And it's, it's okay that the writers have agendas and it's okay that they uh, don't think as chronologically as we would naturally want our writers to think. And so, um, yeah, so I think it's important for us to start by looking at the difference between our Western culture versus Eastern culture that this was written in to understand some of the difference between how we operate and how we think so we can maybe put ourselves more in the mindset of the authors and the original audience. Yeah, we we are, um, uh, and the we, uh, certainly Sarah and I, uh, uh, there might be listeners to us that don't function quite as strongly uh, in this sort of paradigm, but but we are products of a very Western uh, mindset yeah. uh, that comes out of Greek thought. It's platonic. It, uh, it has certain ways of viewing and understanding and seeing the world that... Uh, the the certainly the Old Testament audience, and I would even argue almost all the New Testament audience, really doesn't think through the same sort of paradigms, uh, mm-hmm. even though we get a little more Greek influence as we get into the New Testament. But um, there's just ways that language, thoughts just work differently. So so words, words in uh, Old Testament texts are way more image rich uh, around how they are used. Um, we, we in the West use words uh, that are descriptive. They're a little more concrete. They're almost like adjectives. Uh, so it's how you define and describe things, uh, but in the West, they 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 are way more word picture oriented. So an example of this is um, uh, if you were to ask an Easterner or Westerner, "Hey, how do you describe God? How do you how do you um, what, how how would you describe him?" In the West, we would naturally go to to I think for words um, like immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, some of these big descriptive words. But if you were to ask Eastner, I think their default would, would be something like, um, God is like a fortress or God is like eagle wings and, 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 and use these sort of word images uh, around uh, certain issues. Right. Yeah. And so, and then we look at numbers and we see in the East numbers are more symbolic 
or they're qualitative. They're meant to communicate an idea rather than be completely literally understood at all times yeah, versus which, in the West. I would argue this is the hardest one for the West. Like how are numbers yeah. not quantitative? <laughs> That's what numbers are. But uh, yeah, it's just not how Easterners work. And so... Um, yeah, give us some examples of that. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think even when we get to some New Testament stories, so when we get to um, we get to the breaking of the bread and the fish and stuff like that. So uh, why are there five loaves and two fishes? Is that meant to convey something? Or were there just literally five loaves and two fishes? And, and uh, I would argue, given very Eastern understandings of right. things. No, 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 no. They would hear five. Uh, so if you would say, say uh, five plus two equals seven, we, we would put that as a math equation. They would go... F- Five books of Moses plus the two tablets of of uh, the the law equals a, a fullness like a, a creation week, a, a fullness of time, and so um, that's that's just how they see numbers. And so I, I think you can go overboard at times to interpret that way, but uh, I would argue majority of numbers in Scripture tend to follow uh, this sort of pattern of the numbers mean more than we think they mean because in Western world, we just don't do that with numbers. Right. And so tell us a little bit about the eternal life component. Yeah, I I think, um, and this is a struggle too. Uh, I think sometimes uh, we've been so influenced by uh, fictional literature in the, in the East that eternal life is the the future. It is uh, some sort of heavenly state in the future. Um, but uh, but even Jesus uses phrases like eternal life is knowing God. And so uh, we know mm-hmm. God now. Eternal life is something to be experienced and started now. Now there is a fullness that will come one day when Jesus returns. But uh, eternal life is, is something that, that when we start having harmony with God, uh, that that is eternal life, uh, even on this side of Christ's return. Yeah, so it's less bound by linear chronological time than we would naturally do it. <clears throat> yeah, we, we have this sort of weird in-between state that we're in um, because uh, we're, we're not quite where we should be yet. Um, but uh, I, I think they, uh, an Easterner would say, no, 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 a life lived in harmony with God is eternal life now. And um, I, I think scripture often will actually present that a little bit more than sometimes this future world order when, when, when God does finally create a new heaven and new earth. Yes, we will experience eternal life in its absolute fullness, uh, but it's something to also to be experienced now that God has done a reconciliation work with us. Yeah. So as we look at people, uh, and this we experience this even in modern day, Westerners tend to be very individualistic. We make decisions independently, and we really consider ourselves when we're approaching things versus other cultures, Eastern cultures, and the way the Bible was written, they were all very communal and family-oriented. Decisions were made corporately. How you lived impacted everyone around you. How does that influence the way we read and interpret Scripture? Yeah, um, I think sometimes uh, it's just helpful to know just how that works. So when we read about households going and getting baptized all at one time, like that is a communal understanding of how things work. Um, I think sometimes uh, understanding families, like when we read about a, a even when we get to Abraham and he left his father and his family, like how significant it was yeah. that you would leave that sort of community and your identity with your family behind. Um, and, and I think, uh, yeah, we, we just sometimes have adventures of missing the point because we also read scripture and we're in English. We, we have the same word for plural you as we have for singular you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we struggle sometimes because we'll read it and what Paul is saying is y'all do this and y'all do this and y'all act like this, but we read you, 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 uh, and we don't read because 
Paul doesn't write in Southerner tone of y'all or use guys or whatever other regional <laughs> version of plural you exists. Um, Paul doesn't write that way, yet we read it that way because of how English works. And so it's a, it's a struggle sometimes to think as communally. But even like things like repentance. You, you read about repentance in the Old Testament a lot of times. And it's it's we we and our sinned. And um, we are in the Western world. And there's still plenty of room for individual sins. Like Jesus teaches about a Pharisee and a, and a tax collector who both go to pray and, and the, the very individualistic understanding of confession. But there's also sometimes this corporate idea of confession that I would argue in the Western world, we have very little concept. Yeah, I, I feel like that hits me when I'm reading Psalms and I'm looking through it. I'm like, this is a weird song to sing or Psalm to read or sing as yeah. corporate worship like Israel did. But that was the norm for them versus me. I'm like, this is really personal. I would only do this on my own. Right. And I think we're missing out on what a communal repentance and communal behavior looks yeah, like. Yeah, even, as the, even the generational God. piece of that, that, mm-hmm. I mean, it gets into conversations about race in America and stuff like that. It's just so interesting. Um, yeah. Our version of, well, that wasn't my sin, but but the Israelites certainly go, no, no, no. It's it's We own that process or we own that sin. Speaking of sin, tell us about the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think in the West, we are so mind-oriented, which is why... You'll even get the word mind added on to the Shema in the New Testament that love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, we get mind added in there because the Greeks understood that. And so we, how we think is really important. I'm not discounting how we think, but in the West, we put such a heavy emphasis on like sin is wrong thinking. And in, in Eastern, would probably think a little more in the terms of action, like uh, the overflow of your heart is now how you live. And so what we will define us in is wrong action. Now, Jesus certainly has a bit to say about that paradigm, uh, but uh, that they would focus a little more on action, a little less sometimes on just the right thinking. That if the right action, if the right thinking doesn't lead to right action, then the right thinking, then you have wrong thinking to begin with. Like it's always tied together. I think that's interesting to approach when we think of like the root word of the meaning sin, because it was an arch term, right? And so sin would be missing the mark, missing the target. And so when you're aiming an arrow, you're always intending to hit the target. But the sin is when you miss the target, not the intention. Right. And we could talk about root and fruit, like the the root being wrong, therefore the fruit is wrong. And and some of those paradigms, and, and we do that even in a good reformed kind of theological setting that would automatically go like what's internal matters. But um, we, we still apply sometimes of going, yeah, but the actions are still a part of that. Now, were we saved by grace? Absolutely. And we saved by faith? Absolutely. But um, if that faith doesn't lead to the right actions, it's it, so I don't want to get to a whole theological treatise right now, but um, I, I think there's a way to connect that, that East and West, uh, even as we get into the New Testament quite a bit. Um, in descriptions, uh, a Westerner will, will just will use adjectives to describe things. Like here's an adjective uh, to describe that ball is red. Um, when an Easterner would be like, well, "Well, that ball is similar to the other ball over there. It was held by that boy," and and it would always be um, almost descriptive in relation to something more than it would be. Here's the adjective just to describe this thing in an isolated state. Um, so relationally, is that how like when we read in the Gospels, it was like it was half a Sabbath day's journey from here to here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways that, that's part of it. Uh, I think I think I will bring it up as we walk through certain texts where it's like, oh, this this has to do with the relationship. Like we, mm-hmm. we are being described the scene because we're to describe how it relates to God, not just because it's a thing in isolation. Um, yeah. 
and faith. faith. Yeah, I think this is an interesting one too. Uh, once again, this gets into the mind and the Western kind of concept of things. We love creeds and confessions, ascension to certain beliefs and, and systems, which is really, really important. I think it's something the West really brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but the East, the, the idea of like knowing something is that it's experienced. Like even even the, the words used, like the word know in scripture has um a connotation to intercourse as much as it does to uh, how we would think about knowing things. And so um, it is something sometimes that you experience, you don't just have the facts in your brain. Um, so it's, it's just a little bit more tied to that idea than, um, than just knowing God. I, I know God because I know facts about him versus mm-hmm. I know God because I've experienced God. So uh, how does that inform the way truth is discussed or approached in scripture. Yeah. So, um, I think the idea of truth as a, um, as an absolute thing is still true for both sides of those equations. Um, but in, in Easter would say, um, I would never really know that absolute thing until I've experienced that absolute thing. So it's not, uh, our postmodern idea of like, whatever I've experienced is true to me. Um, I don't think that's how an Easterner would think about it versus, um, there is a truth to be known, and, and in order for me to really know it, I have to experience it. So there's still an idea of absolute truth, not I could just divine, define whatever truth I want. I don't yeah. think that's the idea. Um, but that's interesting because that's going to, again, affect the way that we interpret Jesus saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Yeah. No one comes to the Father but through me. Yeah, so we as Westerners are going to hear truth one way versus his original audience. Yeah. And I don't want to discount that we as Westerners like can't understand this. I, I, right. I don't want to get in a rut where it's, um, well, we're so stuck in this worldview that we can't understand this this possibly. Or, or that there's a right and a wrong worldview right. where that God is more pleased with a certain worldview. Absolutely. And and so, and we'll talk about things like even um, um, different cultural norms of honor and shame versus guilt and, mm-hmm. and innocence and all those kind of things as we go. But um, yeah, I want to be cautious to go, okay, just because there's these differences doesn't mean that we as Westerners don't bring value to the table. Um, And so, and some of that plays out in the the question of truth. Sometimes there's a focus in the East on what and who, Uh, as I said, truth is sometimes more experience and and we in the West sort of want to know how. So even when we get to Genesis one, we, we, we bring to the table all these questions of like, how did this happen? And what is the process? And what is, uh, how did these steps work in these days? And Eastern has no concept or really not asking those questions uh, for the most part versus like, Oh, this is telling us so much about God and, and here are the things that he created. And, and so um, making sure we read sometimes of going, all right, may, maybe things that we bring to the table are dangerous or not helpful in the conversation as well. Um, and, yeah. and so, so I think in some ways there's a real gift to us because we are, many of us are Westerners. And so we approach these things from a Western mindset, but as we learn more about the Eastern mindset, we can see, like almost see twice as much of God's goodness and character because we're, we can look at it from a Western perspective, but also an Eastern perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, one way I've, I've heard it described is sometimes, um, it feels like your reading of the text has suddenly gone from, from black and white, which was true. It gave you a picture. You understood mm-hmm. it to, to being really now in color, uh, that, that there's a nuance, there's understanding of culture. There's all these things that really help give a little bit more of a, 
of of depth to 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 the tapestry to the reading of scripture and i, I think that's really really important for people yeah. to be able to go through because you'll get into these things and you'll be like cool there's this dad and his son left him and eventually the son came back and the dad was excited and <laughs> and he threw a big party and the other brother was not happy about it and to not understand so many of the cultural norms that exist in that story how right. an honor shame culture works and and how that all plays out or or even how honor shame and redemption works in in the book of Ruth and, and why that really matters. Like um, to, to know how a first century person or an ancient person would hear those stories, understand the stories, so key uh, to interpreting them. Okay. So let's jump in now that we've talked about all that background, let's jump into the actual different genres of scripture. Yeah. Uh, probably the one we encounter uh, pretty quickly is the idea of a uh, historic narrative. These books that read as if they're sort of history books. Uh, a narrative is f- like a form of a story, basically. Yeah, you're, you're telling a story. You're not just giving information. It's not a lecture. It's it's a it's a story. Um, and uh, the difficulty is the question of, is it history? Is it theology? Is it interpretation by the author? And the answer is, Yes, we kind of have all of them. Uh, there's no way around that. Um, and and I think sometimes as sort of postmodern people would be like, well, that's not, we, we shouldn't trust them because they have an agenda. But no, they, 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 they have seen things, they have witnessed things, and now they're writing down and in so doing, they don't have an interest of going, here is an eyewitness account in factual ways that they have an interest in interpreting those the, the, those events of what they saw, what they understood, how they've heard them, um, and presenting, uh, in some ways, an argument. Uh, so the gospel writers have an argument of why Jesus is a, the messianic king or why Jesus is really a God-man or whatever the, the category is. And so um, sometimes reading it and seeing those things, it's okay. And and there's some good resources. Maybe I'll link to, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but, I just, that, but yeah. I want to say that that also helps us understand that there are times when something will be written down in scripture and it doesn't mean the author of that passage is condoning that behavior. So we'll say, yeah. you know, we'll read about how many wives so-and-so took. It doesn't mean the author doesn't have to say, which was a terrible idea for it to be understood that it was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a, and that's a perfect example of the, the use of uh, polygamy. And polygamy never really works out that well in most of the narratives <laughs> that you read about it. Um, and, and just because it's there, it doesn't mean God clearly condones polygamy. And so uh, there's plenty of stuff that you'll read throughout, particularly the Old Testament, but, but even I think maybe in the New Testament, of like things that are like, is God okay with this? And, and it's, it's, it's counting information. It's accounting stories. It's putting all in there and um, making sure that, that just because you read it doesn't mean that's how God wants us to now live. Um, yeah. The, that's not how narrative works. The analogy or the connection I keep thinking of is, you know, as a parent, like if your parent ever tells you the story of how you were born, right. uh, let's say your mom does that. Like she's got, she's giving you an account of what happened, but but oftentimes the purpose behind telling that story is for you to understand how important you are, or what a special delivery you were, or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's an agenda and there's a purpose there, but it's still an accounting of what happened. Yeah. But if it's, let's say the weather was bad on the road, she's not going to say, and that was a really, really bad thing, you know? Right. Yeah, of course. And uh, the Old Testament is more complex on this. We, mm. we will encounter this as we go. There's just way more 
historic narrative genres where you get into different things and, and we'll cover that when we cover the books. The gospels have their own sort of genre. They, they, they pick up on um, a, a type of genre that existed in the first century around the announcement of kings and, and kings' victories. And it's even called uh, the gospel, the good news. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a type of storytelling and narrative that they are trying to do uh, that I think is really important. And it'll be fun to look at that when we're also considering the audiences, when we'll jump into with those oh, gospel absolutely. stories. But the I genres... mean, we're going to do that next week in the right. very first episode. Uh, we'll talk about the opening of Luke and what's he doing with mentioning Herod and mentioning Caesar. And so yeah. um, I think all that matters. Um, and Acts is kind of its own a little bit of category. And then we get poetry. Um, so let me talk about poetry. Yeah, I great. Talk Go about ahead. Poetry. Okay, so we have poetry, obviously, in Psalms. Um, and then actually in a lot of the prophets and in different parts of scripture. But I think what's important for us to understand in poetry in scripture is that it doesn't, when we write poetry in English, we think of Shakespeare. So we think of iambic pentameter, we think of things that rhyme and poetry in the Bible, Hebrew poetry was written um, to, to provide contrasting or comparing statements. Poetry mm-hmm. was written with, you know, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. So we see uh the poetry coming across in the language and the imagery rather than the rhymes, which is awesome because it means that we can still get the purpose and the point of the poetry, even if we're not reading it in the original language. That's what I want to say about poetry. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and so, uh, and then we get things like um, wisdom literature. Uh, we're going to encounter this when we go through things like Proverbs and others. And um, I, I think the best way to think about wisdom is that there are things that are generally true. Uh, that uh, it'll it'll say things like uh, uh, that if you act a certain way, then um, then wealth or abundance will abound, and and sometimes that those things are generally true. If you act faithful and and don't try to steal from everybody, could could you be prosperous? Yes. Does that mean universally that that is always a true statement? No. And sometimes uh, thinking through wisdom as like, these are not statements to try to uh, convince us that that is the the thing that I should apply now to my life um, in terms of expecting the outcome to be always the same as the wisdom writer writes. There's what two pieces that go yeah, with yeah. this, right? It's, it's not a promise. It's a... <sighs> I can't think of the other... I can never remember the other piece that goes with it, but... Maybe it'll come to me. Um, it's not a promise. It's, um, but anyways, uh, so if you think of it, remind me. But um, I, I think uh, the other piece to remember with wisdom literature, uh, w- one way to view it is that it's um, it's tools. It's tools in a tool belt of how to um, navigate reality. Uh, I think some of the wisdom literature, even leading up to Job, kind of kind of functions that way. That uh, as Israel goes through its highs and lows, as it suffers, as it has bountiful moments, as it uh, goes through all these seasons of life, that the wisdom sort of gives them these tools to to, to operate and to understand their world. Um, and, and I think the poetry does that too. It gives them language of prayer. How do we pray when we're angry? How do we pray when we are excited? How do we pray when we're suffering and don't understand um, that there's these wonderful tools that I think the book of Psalms uh, and the wisdom literature ultimately gives us? Principles. Oh, it's yeah. not a promise. It's a principle. Oh, so good. Not a promise. It's a principle. Um, and that's that's absolutely true. And you'll encounter that, particularly in the book of Proverbs, all over the place. Yes. Um, and then lastly, our epistles. It's epistles. letters. It's mail. It's uh, letters written between... Uh, 
usually an individual and some church or other individuals. Um, and we read those like we would read mail in some way. And so um, understanding that it's written to a certain person or a certain crowd, it has usually cultural context that it's speaking to and with problems that exist on the ground that may not be the same problems we suffer with. Um, but um, And I will say that in the West, I think we tend to prefer these because they are very instructive. You can't interpret them all literally, but they kind of give you really simple commands of like, okay, I have to do this. I have to do this. I shouldn't do this. So they're easier for us to understand as Westerners. Yeah. Uh, Brian McLaren hits on that a lot around the the, the sort of uh, heavy emphasis sometimes we put on mm-hmm. particularly Paul yeah. uh, and um, sometimes being cautious because they are the things that are easiest to us to understand. They're the most straightforward. They require the least amount of cultural homework. They require the least amount of interpretive homework. Um, that's just so easier. So you, Until well, you yeah, study true. you're like, wait uh, a second. Yeah. Paul might be saying more uh, and way more complex things than we think, but um yeah, I think sometimes, uh, yeah, we put a heavy emphasis on those when um, they're great, and we should put a great emphasis on them. But um, being cautious of, look, it, the whole Bible is the Word of God, not just the words of Paul. And so um, making sure that we read fairly. So <laughs> and, what yeah. would you say are some of the dangers of misreading a text or misunderstanding a genre? Yeah, I, I think... Um, so probably the thing I get hung up on the most is um, approaching things um, super literally when they're not meant to be, mm-hmm. um, or at least that's not their primary purpose or goal. Um, so, I mean, we'll deal with this even in Genesis when we talk about some of those stories of um, how literally are we supposed to be really even thinking about this? And and it causes us to get hung up on not the point. We get a little bit of adventures of missing the point of that text um, because we're worried about how did that take place and how did that happen? Um, uh, and so, yeah, sometimes the literalistic reading of things, which is just not how we are meant to read things. Like when Jesus tells people, look, if, if, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. If your eye caused you to sin, gouge your eye out. I, I haven't met too many Christians who are missing their hands and eyes, and they should be if we're reading that literally. And um, trying to understand what text is meant to be literal, what text is meant to be figurative, um, or at least interpreted through a different lens than literal understanding of things. That does not mean that I do not affirm that every word of scripture is God breathed. God desires it to be in there. Um, So don't hear me when I say that I don't think everything should be led literally um, that, that I don't affirm uh, the authority and, and, and what scripture is. But um, I also want us to, to not necessarily overlay things that we've always been told of how to interpret things. uh, And particularly around this idea of literalism, because once again, that's a Western idea in some ways of of how to interpret things, and so and not even not even an old Western idea. It's like two hundred years of going. No, no, no. Literalism has to be the way we go. So, um, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing, or even you know things like proof texting. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. When that's we look dangerous. at things literally, and I, I mean, I just hear that a lot when it comes to especially people's interpretations of the roles of women. Uh, If they look at one passage and don't look at the whole thing, or they think, I want the Bible to prove to me whether I should save up for retirement or not, then you're grabbing something and you're not looking at the context and you're not considering it in light of other passages of scripture and you're missing out. I mean, you're missing out on what God is teaching you. And I think we oftentimes lean towards starting to follow the law again when we make rules for ourselves on what we should and should not do. Yep. Yeah, uh, the Bible tends to be much more complex in speaking issues than like two verses. Um, and so sometimes we build large scale practical theologies based upon a verse or two. And, and that could be dangerous too, particularly pulled out of context. 
So yeah. what does Paul mean or when he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus around women? And so that's important questions to ask and um, not just go, well, it's straightforward. There's this one sentence and it means yeah. this and there's no other way to interpret that. That That's problematic. And, um, and that's, once again, that's not approaching scripture humbly either. So um, yeah, proof texting can be right, or pretty like problematic. Looking at Jesus to the rich young ruler and suddenly thinking, well, I have to sell everything I have and give it to the poor if yeah. I want to inherit eternal life. Oh, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so being cautious on proof texting, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, this is a little longer than we probably wanted, but uh, I think we covered a lot. Uh, and, and so um, I think you guys will have now some of the tools to start into uh, our week one. Thanks. Thanks.